The following message is by Pastor Jason Polly. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. What a great day to be here to worship Him this morning. We've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, I'll provide a brief review. Before we do, though, I just want to open with another word of prayer. Father God, thank you so much for your grace. I thank you for this time that we have now to look to your word. And God, I pray that we would be eager to learn from it. God, that we would not um, take for granted the fact that we have this opportunity to come before you as a body, as a church, and to hear from you. God, I pray that we would not lose sight of what a privilege it is to hear from Your Word and to apply it to our lives by Your grace. God, we know it is only by Your grace that we will live in light of what we read, what we hear, and God, we are asking for an extra measure of it as we seek to do so this morning, and we pray all these things in Christ's name, amen. So as I mentioned, we're working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're getting close, folks, we're getting very close. We're in 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to look at verses 21 through 34, and Paul, as I've mentioned many times, has laid this foundation of the gospel. He's writing to this church whom he loves dearly in Corinth, and he's corrected some errors, corrected some problems with their thinking, some problems with their theology, and as a result, some problems with the way they've lived, because bad theology leaves, leads to bad living. That if you think improperly, you will live improperly, and they need to think biblically in order to live biblically. And Paul is correcting some misunderstanding or some wrong thinking about the gospel and about the resurrection in particular as we look at these verses. That's why many of the songs we've sung this morning and, and in the last, over the last couple of weeks are songs we often connect to Easter because we think of resurrection, we think of Easter, but Paul has uh, been dealing with this issue of resurrection because the resurrection is important not just once a year, but is important to the Christian life day in and day out, as we have seen. So without further ado, let's look at our text, 1 Corinthians 15, verses uh, 20 through 34. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at His coming. Then comes the end, when He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For He has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in which you have in Christ, I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So having said what would be true if Christ has not been raised from the dead, last week He said, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then He said seven things were true. Not last week, but the week before. Uh, Last time we were in 1 Corinthians, He said, number one, our preaching is in vain. Number two, our faith is is in vain. Number three, we're false witnesses of God. Number four, our faith is worthless. Five, we are still in our sins. 
Six, the dead have perished. And seven, we are most to be pitied. That's what he said. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then these things are true. But then in verse 20, he says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. And not only that, but He is the firstfruits of those who are asleep or those who are dead. The term firstfruits is an Old Testament term and it refers to the first gathering of a, of a crop and it represents a sure sign of more to come. I know that many of you plant a garden each year. Um, not Kim and I. If you've seen our garden, you'd, um, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We have these raised beds at the top of our driveway where there's no sun and there's nothing that's been planted in them for the last, I don't know, seven or eight years. So there's weeds. And once in a while, we'll go and we'll pull the weeds so there's just dirt. But there's no garden. There's never, I don't think there's really ever an, any intention of a garden. I'm not sure why we put these raised beds there or why we have them. It was, it was good intentions, I guess. But many of you plant a garden every year, and each year you watch with anticipation as the plants grow and they flower, and eventually they get to the point where you can pick those first tomatoes or cucumbers or green peppers or whatever it is you're growing. And as you do so, you rejoice not just for that first harvest, but also because you know that more is to come. Those first cucumbers and tomatoes, they grow and they ripen, and you know that others are not far behind, that others are following along behind them. And while we dare not take this analogy too far, Paul's point is that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so too others will follow. He was the first fruits that as we see that Christ was raised, there's an expectation that others will follow. So don't miss that promise. Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, he says it with clarity and surety. He says others will indeed be raised from the dead. Now look at verses 21 through 27 as we dig into the meat of our text today. Verses, uh, verses starting at verse 21. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at His coming. Then comes the end when He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and all power, for He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For He has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when He says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that He is accepted who put all things in subjection to Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son, of, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him so that God may be all in all. He says, for since by a man came death, by a man also came this resurrection from the dead. As in Adam, all die, so also in Christ, all will be made alive. We see the same thing described in more detail in Romans 5. Romans 5 is a correlating passage where in Romans 5, starting at verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. He was representation of the coming, the perfect Adam, Jesus. But the free gift... Verse 15 of Romans 12, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. He says that just as all died in Adam, so those who are in Christ will be saved. That the grace of the one man, Jesus, abounds to the many who are in Christ. Him. You see, we inherited a sin nature through our father, Adam. And just like him, we too have sinned against God. That's what Scripture teaches. So our text in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, For as in Adam all die. But 
That's bad news, but also those who are in Christ, all will be made alive. You see, Scripture is clear, as we've said many times, that for all have sinned, Scripture teaches, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That every one of us were in Adam when he sinned, and that sin nature is imputed to us. And we say, wait a minute, that's not fair. We, get to, we somehow get to pay for Adam's sin? No, the Scripture says we were in Adam. We were part of that. We took part in that sin because we were in Adam when he sinned. And the result is that we too have in turn sinned. That we are guilty ourselves as well. However, if we are found in Christ, the One who came into this world, the God who came into this world, lived as a perfect man, who did what Adam did not do, could not do, and died in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve, that if we are found in Him, followers of Jesus, that we can be forgiven, that we are granted eternal life. So the Scripture, and specifically what Paul is pointing to here in 1 Corinthians, is that those who are in Christ have been granted eternal life, both spiritually and physically. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, so too others will be raised. So let's look at verses 23 through 28, more specifically, starting at verse 23. But, he says, each will be raised, but each in his own order. We see three things here. Number one, Christ the firstfruits. Number two, after that, those who are Christ at His coming. And number three, then comes the end. So Christ will be raised first, then those who are Christ at His coming, and then the end. And we see in Scripture that there's a resurrection of all men, some to eternal life with Christ, to heaven, and then others to everlasting judgment. Paul has in mind here, he's talking to believers and he's focused primarily on the resurrection of those who are in Christ. The resurrection of believers. That we will one day be united to our bodies. That though we die and we are separated from our bodies, that our bodies will be raised up to newness of life. And next week we'll see kind of a picture of what that looks like. Our bodies will be raised up, they'll be made new, made perfect, and we will be united with our bodies. He says, and then comes the end when He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and authority and power, for He must reign. This is Christ. He, Christ, must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. And then he clarifies and says, now when I'm talking about all things being put in subjection, he says it's evident that God the Father is not in subjection to Christ, but God the Father gives Christ the authority and then Christ hands over that uh, subjected world back to the Father. That's what he's saying in verses 27 through 28. And the temptation here in this text is to go from here and start talking about eschatology. The temptation is to jump to Revelation, to jump to Daniel, and start talking about how all these things play out. To start talking about how the end times are going to play out. But that's not what Paul focuses on here at all. Paul's eschatology, Paul's end times theology is not summed up in this section of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is not concerned with sharing all that he knows or doesn't know about the way the end times will be played out. Instead, Paul has a greater point here. And I don't want you to miss Paul's main point. His point is that God has guaranteed the resurrection of the dead. And it will happen in accordance with His timing. That God has guaranteed that we indeed will be raised from the dead and He has orchestrated the times and the events through which that will happen. So Paul doesn't tell us how many years will pass between Christ the firstfruits, something we celebrate that happened some 2,000 years ago, and the resurrection of those who are His. We don't know exactly when that will happen. Nor does he tell us how many years between the resurrection of the saints and what he calls the end. Some would say, oh, there's a literal thousand year period. He doesn't say that here in this text. What he does say is, each will happen in its own order. God has ordained that Christ will reign until He has put all enemies, all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy being death. 
Notice that Paul doesn't say that Christ will reign, but according to the text, Christ is reigning now. His point is that Christ is reigning now. He is reigning and He must continue to. He's reigning now and He must reign until. That He's reigning now and He'll continue to reign until He has defeated all of His enemies. This is important for us to understand as believers. Jesus Christ is reigning and ruling today. We don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. Just this past week, I had a conversation with a friend over what is often called Lordship Salvation. And whether when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as your Savior, you need to receive Him as your Lord. Whether you submit and say, Jesus, I make you Lord of my life, or whether you can receive Jesus as your Savior without saying Jesus is Lord. And this debate has gone on for quite a long time and it will probably continue. But the point is that we cannot come to Christ and say, Jesus, I receive You as my Savior, but I do not receive You as Lord. You cannot say, Jesus, I need to be saved from my sins, but I'm going to do things my way. You are not Lord. Because in so doing, you are receiving a false Christ. You're receiving one who is not Jesus, but instead you've violated God's commands and made an idol. Jesus is Lord. By the same token, we don't say, Jesus, I fully submit my life to you and I know exactly what that's going to look like and everything I have I hand over to you. We don't fully submit to Jesus as Lord. We can't fully submit to Jesus as Lord in our own strength or, or ever completely. That it's a process That Jesus is always knocking on the door of my heart and going, Jason, I need this. And I say, really? That too, Lord? And He says, yes. I need that. So I give that to Him. And then He says, oh, by the way, um, this, you haven't surrendered this to me. And I say, okay. And I had no idea when I became a believer what it meant to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And you know what? Today, I still have no idea what it truly means to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I am learning that day by day by day as I surrender my life by His grace, surrender my life to Him for He is Lord. So we don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. We're not waiting for Him to return so that He can reign He must reign. That is, He must continue to reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. And some of those enemies are idols that exist in my heart. Some of those enemies are enemies that exist in my life that He says, that's an enemy of me. That you've placed that over and above me. He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. Why? Because He is Lord. And ultimately, the final enemy that he will destroy is death. This is a beautiful picture of the redemptive work of Christ, by the way. Adam's sin resulted in a loss of that which God created. It resulted in the loss of life. When Adam sinned, death reigned. It resulted in death. And now, Christ's reign will ultimately lead to the once and for all end of death that Christ will abolish. He'll put an end to death. That's why later on in this chapter, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable, this body of death, must put on the imperishable, that which it will not die. And this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal have put on the immortal, then will come the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. The victory over death 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that which was lost in Adam, namely life, is regained in Christ. I remember when my father was dying in the hospital. And the nurse said to me, she said, huh? you know, this is, this is natural. She said, I've been doing this for 20 some odd years or whatever she said. I've been doing this for a long time. And I just want to assure you, this is natural. And I said, no, you're wrong. This is not natural. This is not natural at all. This is one of the most unnatural things. That man's body, my father's body, was created to live. That as human beings, we were created to live, and that ability to live was lost in Adam. It is only because of sin, only because of the results of the fall, that we die. And that body, look at him, it wants to live because that's what it was created to do. That life which was lost in Adam is regained in Christ. And I could rejoice knowing that one day that body, that body which was far from perfect, dying in a hospital bed, would be raised to newness of life because my Father was in Christ. Praise God that Jesus defeated death on the cross. That death was stripped of its power. And Christ will continue to reign until one day death will be completely abolished. It's stripped of its power, folks. But we still have to deal with it. And then one day, it will be completely done away, as the text says, as we just sang earlier. We read of this glorious day in Revelation 21. 21 verses 1-4, through John writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them. And they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Catch this. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Christ will once and for all abolish, put an end to death. So as we get back to our text, Paul's main point in verses 20 through 28, it's the same as our sermon title, Christ must reign. He's defeated death and he will abolish it. He'll do away with it altogether. So with that understanding, I want you to look at two things that his defeat over death motivates us as believers to do. Two things that his defeat motivates us to do. In other words, now that we know he's defeated death, that he's granted eternal life to those who are in him, I want you to see two specific ways this motivates us to live. So, with all that, that's the introduction. We'll get into the first point in our, in our sermon outline. There's two ways that Christ's victory over death motivates us. Number one, it serves, Christ's victory over death serves as motivation to speak. Motivation to speak. More specifically, to testify, to share the gospel, to proclaim the gospel. Because he defeated death, we are now motivated to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 29. When I prayed earlier for not only for God to uh, illuminate His Word, when I prayed that God would not only make us hearers of the Word, but also doers of the Word, I, I specifically implied or want to imply also that God would meet us in understanding His Word. Verse 29 is one of the more difficult passages of Scripture, one of the more difficult verses of Scripture. I think as we unpack it in the context, we'll see what Paul is talking about here. Look at verse 29. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? So as I mentioned, there's no small debate, no small amount of debate as to what Paul means when he talks about being baptized for the dead. However, we can be sure that he is not suggesting that someone can be baptized and have that baptism somehow applied to someone else who is already dead. When I was baptized, that baptism didn't apply to my relatives who had died before me or to my friends who had died before me. 
I can't be baptized on their behalf. In other words, he's not suggesting that the Corinthians, or you or I for that matter, could be baptized and that that would somehow impact the eternal state of someone who had already died. In fact, nothing could be further from the case because we know that Scripture says, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds. Done how? Done in the body. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds done during his life according to what he has done, not according to what someone else has done. That we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and we must, we must give an account for what we have done in our lives while we were alive, not give an account for what somebody did for us after we died, whether good or bad. So what does he mean, what does Paul mean when he speaks of being baptized for the dead? The Greek word translated for can be understood because of, depending on the context. And I think that clearly is the case here. I think the text should be understood as because of. So when we read it that way, we read this. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized because of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why, why then are they baptized because of them? See, in light of the fact that baptism is a public proclamation of one's faith, and the fact that Paul in the next couple of verses is going to go on to talk about persecution that he and the other apostles suffered, here's what I think Paul is saying in this verse. He's saying, of course Christ has defeated death. He spent this whole time saying, Christ has defeated death. Of course there's a resurrection. Everything points to this resurrection. You need to believe and understand in the resurrection of Christ because He's defeated death. Otherwise, if that's not the case, otherwise, what will those do who have made a public proclamation? What will those do who have been baptized? Who have made a public proclamation because of the testimony of those who have given their lives because of the Gospel. He's saying, if the dead are not raised at all, then those who gave their lives for the Gospel, they died for nothing. Then why in that case would anyone want to be baptized? Why would anyone also want to make a public proclamation? And I have no doubt in my mind that Paul, whenever he wrote, often thought of Stephen. That Paul, as he was thinking about such events and thinking about persecution, thinking about uh, testifying to Jesus, testifying about Jesus and sharing the Gospel with the lost world, that Paul undoubtedly thinks back to seeing Stephen be stoned and Paul giving hearty approval to what took place. And that Paul has has this view where he says, otherwise, what would those do what will those do who, are, who have made a public proclamation? Who, those, what would those do who have been baptized, who have professed Jesus because of the testimony of those who have given their lives? Guys like Stephen. If the dead are not raised, if Stephen's not raised, if those who have testified of Jesus, if there was no benefit from them, there's no benefit for you in proclaiming the Gospel. See, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then as we saw a couple of weeks ago, then the apostles were false witnesses. That's what Paul said. And that their faith is worthless. But, Paul is saying to the Corinthians that because Christ has defeated death, their faith has value. And therefore, it must be proclaimed. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, therefore we must make a public proclamation. We must be baptized. So having seen, number one, that Christ's victory over death serves as motivation to share the Gospel, now let's consider point number two. Christ's victory over death serves as motivation to deny oneself. Christ's victory over death serves as motivation to deny self. These two points really go hand in hand. Because in sharing the gospel, we are called to deny ourselves. Look at verses 30 through 32. Paul writes, Why then, why are we also in danger every hour? He's talking specifically to himself, his ministry team, the apostles. Why are we in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, 
what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul says, if there's no life after this one, why would we put ourselves in danger? Why would I be in danger every hour if there's no life after this one? Why would I even die to self? He goes on and says, why would I die to myself daily? Why would I neglect the things that I desire in the flesh if there's no life after this one? And then with regard to the fighting of wild beasts, we don't know specifically what Paul's talking about here. Uh, If you read Acts chapter 19, which we don't have time to read right now, when I read that, I think of the city of Ephesus. They seem like they're wild beasts seeking to devour Paul. And I think that's what he's talking about here. That there's a similar kind of event that Paul understood as he was proclaiming the Gospel, he was putting his very life on the line in a culture that was hostile toward the Gospel. If there's ever a time that this is applicable, I think this is applicable to our world today. That we are seeing a world where the, world, the culture, our culture, even here in America, is becoming growingly hostile toward the Gospel, the true Gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think that's going to only continue, folks. So we need to understand Paul's words. We need to understand when Paul says, if the resurrection wasn't true, why would I put myself in danger? If the resurrection wasn't true, why would I die to self? If the resurrection wasn't true, why would I put myself in a position where the gospel was so important that I was willing to be torn apart by wild beasts? We need to have an understanding of the resurrection And let the resurrection motivate us to do the work that God has called us to do in a culture that does not readily accept the truth of Scripture. At this point here in these verses, Paul's point is, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then why bother? Why risk your life? And he says, instead, let us eat and drink. And be merry. For tomorrow, we die. You know, and that's the world's philosophy, actually. And if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, I've heard people say, if Christ was not raised from the dead, even if there's no salvation in heaven, that the Christian life is one worth living today. That I would still enjoy the benefits of the Christian life. And I think, are you crazy? That's not at all what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the world's going to hate you. That you should expect persecution. That your life is going to be tough. That there will be trials and troubles. Yes, Christ is with you. But our hope lies in the fact that there is a resurrection from the dead. Without the resurrection, we are above all men most to be pitied. So if you don't believe in a resurrection from the dead, leave, go, eat. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's what Scripture says. Enjoy your Sunday morning doing something other than this. That's what's being talked about here. Paul says, if there's no resurrection, why bother at all? But, before you run with that, but there is a resurrection of the dead. There is life after death. Because that which was lost in Adam is regained in Christ. So denying self and enduring suffering is entirely worthwhile if it's for the sake of the Gospel. That's why Paul writes these words to Timothy. And I want you to listen to these words that he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1. I want you to listen to them as though he's speaking to you. Because these words certainly are applicable to all of us. He says, denying self and enduring suffering is entirely worthwhile. And he says, conveys that point to Timothy. 2 Timothy 1, starting at verse 7. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, His prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the Gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to works, but according to His own purpose, and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death 
and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard that which I have entrusted to Him until that day. He says, I am willing to endure suffering. I am not ashamed. I am willing to do whatever it takes in this life because I am looking to the life that is to come. I know He's able to guard that which I've entrusted until the day where I am with Him in eternity. That's what He tells Timothy. And that's what I want you to know today. That denying self during suffering is worth it if it's for the sake of the Gospel. Because as we know, this life is but a vapor. It's short. And eternity, it's long. It's a long time. So having seen that, number one, Christ's victory over death serves as motivation to share the Gospel, and number two, Christ's victory over death serves as motivation to deny oneself, Paul then shares three commands with the church in Corinth. He then gives them three commandments. Look at verses 33-34. through Number one, he says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. First command is, do not be deceived. In context, we like to take this, uh, this little piece of Scripture, this verse, bad company corrupts good morals. We like to take it out of context and we like to apply it to all kinds of different situations. And granted, it is true that bad company corrupts good morals, that we need to be careful that that is a true statement. However, when Bill goes to the local establishment, the local pub to have a burger, and there's things happening at the pub, the context of this passage is not, you know, Paul said bad company corrupts good morals. That's not what Paul is talking about here. That We need to be careful of those things, but we also, I think, sometimes take this way too far, and we don't associate with the world. We're happy to live in our little holy huddle here at church and not go out and reach out to the world who is lost and dying and in need of a Savior. A world who will spend eternity in hell. And if His victory over death in my life doesn't motivate me to share the Gospel, then maybe I need to step back and say, do I understand the Gospel? Has the Gospel really been applied to me? Is Jesus Christ truly my Savior? Do I recognize what I've been forgiven Four, if I can't go and share that with others. So in context, he's saying, don't be deceived into thinking there's no resurrection of the dead. Clearly, he's ta- that's what he's talking about here. Bad company, those who say there's no resurrection of the dead, leads to a corrupt lifestyle. That bad thinking leads to, bad theology leads to bad, a bad lifestyle. It leads one, if you believe there's no resurrection, it leads one to say, life is short, I might as well live it up. I might as well enjoy the time that I have indulging my flesh in whatever it desires. He says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived into thinking that. That this life is all that there is to offer. And you know, most of us wouldn't, we wouldn't say that. We wouldn't say that we live that way. But functionally, we often live that way. We say we believe in heaven. We say we're storing up treasure in heaven. And yet... We're really storing up treasure to make ourselves happy and healthy here. I want to encourage us to think about Paul's command here. Do not be deceived. You need to think properly. And think about the way you're thinking about the life after this one leads you to live. Number two, he says, become sober-minded as you ought. Here's the opposite, right? Think properly. Think biblically. Have a correct understanding of Scripture. So live with eternity in mind. And number three, stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So don't be deceived. Become sober-minded and stop sinning. Stop sinning and let others go on without a correct knowledge of God. Don't remain silent, is his point. Speak the truth, even if it means you suffer for doing so. Speak the truth of the Gospel. Don't go on sinning and letting others have no knowledge of God, who God is and what He has done. Instead, speak the Gospel. So the question is, how does all of this apply to us both individually and corporately, specifically here at Harmony Bible Church? How do we take this 
message that Paul wrote to the Corinthians and apply it to our lives in a specific way? Well, I want to give you three points. Number one, we must have a clear understanding of the gospel. We must not be deceived into thinking that this life is all there is. An improper view of eternity says, live for the pleasures of this world. For tomorrow, you might die. A proper view of the gospel says, live with eternity in focus. For tomorrow, you might die. The gospel calls us to be willing to lay down our desires, lay down our lives for the glory of the one who laid down his life for us. We need to have a clear understanding of the gospel. It's not about this life. Not just about this life. It's about eternity. And we need to live with eternity in mind. Number two, we must let Christ's victory over death serve as motivation to share the gospel. We've been rescued from sin and death. How can we not declare His goodness? How can we not go out into the world? And I've been, I've been critical of those who just seem to, that's all they ever do, who just seem to be those people who are, you know, they're the annoying people, that's all, that's all they want to talk about, is Jesus, right? And I think, maybe it's because they understand what they've been rescued from. We've been rescued from sin and death. How can we not declare that to the world around us? You know, if I walked out into the middle of the road and Mark saved my life, I would be sure to tell you all about how great of a guy Mark is. And yet Jesus rescues us from eternity in hell and we keep our mouths closed. Something wrong with that picture, folks. Christ's victory over death should serve as motivation to share the gospel, both individually and corporately. Individually with friends, people you're close to, people whom it's going to cost something when you say, hey, I've got to tell you something. I've got I to tell you this. With family, family who's going to look at you funny every Thanksgiving from now until the end of your life because you say, I, I have to share this with you. I have to share what Christ has done for me. I have to share the truth of the gospel with you because I believe it because of what he's done, and I can't not share it with coworkers, with neighbors. We work with people 40, 50 hours a week, day in, day out, years on end, and never get around to sharing the gospel. His victory over death should serve as motivation for us to do that as individuals. His, motivation, her, his victory over death should serve as motivation for us to share the gospel as a body as well, as a corporate body. The gospel should be evident in our services. Everything should point to the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he has done for us. When you give, you should give because of what Christ has done for you. Not as a means of paying him back, but as a means of just bringing him glory. When you sing, you should sing not to pay Him back for what He's done, but to give Him glory for what He has done. It should affect the way we welcome people. It should affect the way we dress even. It should affect the, whether we sit in pews or chairs. You know, Roger said to me last week, he said, you know, that uh, just going from pews to chairs uh, automatically increases about uh, 25% in seating because there's an understanding of exactly where the chairs are. And... Uh, whether, whether we're going to argue that or not, I go, you know, um, that's, an interesting, that's an interesting point. Because a lot of churches, they're less concerned about what, how can we get more people, how can we fit more people in, how can we reach more people with the gospel, and that's not what the service is all about. But certainly if people are coming, we need to be serious about sharing the gospel. We need to be serious about reaching the community around us. Whether it's the chairs we sit in or the songs we sing, is it about us? Or is it about sharing the gospel as a body? What is our motivation? What is our desire? What are we seeking to do? Maybe it's the service times. We talked about service times earlier. Instead of thinking about, well, what's convenient for me? Maybe we should think about how best can I reach the world around me? If that's five in the morning, I don't think it is. But if that's five in the morning then that's five in the morning. Why not lay down our desires for the sake of reaching the community around us? But oftentimes we get, as Richard would say, wrapped around our own axle. So it leads me to point number three. 
we must let Christ's victory over death serve as motivation to deny self for the sake of the gospel. Just as Christ's victory over death serves as motivation to share the gospel, Christ's victory over death serves as motivation to deny ourselves for the sake of the gospel. This doesn't mean, by the way, that we seek suffering or that we make ourselves a martyr. I know plenty of people who just go out and they're rude and they present the gospel in a horrible way or they, they beat on people and therefore they're martyred and they're like, look, I was, uh, I was martyred. That's not the point. It wasn't Paul's ministry. Paul's ministry wasn't to go and cause people to persecute him, but instead, if the gospel was offensive and people were offended, so be it. He was willing to deny himself for the sake of the gospel. We need to do the same. Individually, that means investing in the kingdom with our time, with our resources, with our talents. We all have money. Maybe we need to invest more money in the kingdom. We all have time. Maybe we need to invest more time. We all have talents. Maybe we need to invest those talents for God's glory, for the sake of the gospel so that others may be reached. And corporately, Corporately, I pray that we become known as the church with kingdom priorities. Not as the church that is focused on ourselves. One of the things I asked Roger last week, I said, what can Harmony do to help these church plants? We're small. We don't have much. But what can we do? What can we do to help these guys who are stepping out in faith and sharing the gospel and planting churches in the state of Maine? What can we do? do. Because you know what? I think we could probably do a whole lot more than we're willing to do. Both as individuals and as a body. And I think that's scary. I know that as, a, as an individual, I'm probably able to do more than I'm willing to do. And I need to step back and say, Christ is victorious over death. He bought my salvation Therefore, that must serve as motivation to deny myself. Look at the Apostle Paul. He was willing to lay down everything for the sake of the gospel. Look at the apostles. They laid down their lives so they could share the gospel with the world. And corporately, as I mentioned, I pray that we do become that church, the church known for kingdom priorities, the church that is sending out missionaries, the church that is planting other churches, the church who sells its possessions as, set, as is said in Acts to invest in the kingdom, the church who devotes their time to the kingdom. And I don't know what that looks like. We need to pray about what that looks like. That may mean changing a lot of things. It could change things that we don't want to change. That's the whole point of denying self. We mean that we change where we sit. So a visitor comes in and we want to have a place for them to sit. So we change where we sit or we stand or we sit on the floor. It may mean that we change the types of songs that we sing or when we meet or any of those things. It may mean that we spend less money investing in our retirement, which may never happen, by the way, because tomorrow you might die and spend more time investing in the kingdom. I've sat beside a lot of hospital beds and I've never seen somebody say, if I just could have saved more for my retirement. I've never had somebody sit, dying, lay dying in a hospital bed and say, I wish I could have worked another year. Never had anybody say, you know, I wish I had bought that house. I wish I had bought that motorcycle. And just this morning I said, next year, next spring, I said to Mark, next spring I will have one. Right? And you know what keeps me from having one? Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe that money can be used somewhere else. I'm not saying that all those things are bad. That it's not bad to have these things. That God blesses us with things. And I think you'll find that the more that you sacrifice, the more you deny yourself, the more God gives you. You can't keep up with Him. But we need to be willing to deny ourselves in all things. And I don't know what that looks like, but I want to challenge you as a church, that may look very, very scary if we're serious about this. Can you imagine taking ten of us and saying, let's go plant a church in Rockland? Taking five, of, five families, taking two families from here and three families from Spruce Head and saying, let's go do that. 
Can you imagine putting a for sale sign and meeting at the local school because we sold the building so that the money could be used for the furtherance of the kingdom? And those, those may not be things that God is calling us to do. But those are the types of things that God calls people to do who are serious about denying themselves and serious about sharing the gospel. And that's what we must do as followers of Jesus. His victory over death should serve to motivate us to share the gospel and serve to motivate us to deny ourselves even when it's hard. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace. God, I just pray and ask that you'd be with us. Give us a zeal for the work that you're doing. God, help us to lay aside our idols, even idols that may look like kingdom building, even idols that may seem like they are good, that we may oftentimes be seeking our own glory. God, help us to not seek our own glory. Help us to not seek to our own comfort. Help us instead to seek to be serious about sharing the gospel, to be serious about denying self for the sake of the gospel. God, give us a clear understanding of the gospel. Give us a view of the resurrection that is clear, knowing that one day that we will be united, that those who are in you will be united with their bodies and spend eternity with you. And that those who do not know you will be united with their bodies and placed in a place of eternal destruction. God, we do not desire to see our friends, our neighbors, our family go to hell. God, we desire to be faithful in sharing the good news of the good news of the gospel. And God, even if none were saved we would be desirous of sharing that testimony, sharing the truth of what You have done for us, sharing the truth of the eternal life that is offered through Your Son, Jesus. God, I thank You that that which was lost in Adam has been regained in Christ. I pray all these things in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Polly pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and we invite you to connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. God bless you, and to God be the glory.